This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, craft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Buenos dias. I am speaking to you in Spanish today because I guess I'm in a very good mood. Today on Life Worlds, we're going to get down and in the thick of it tangled up in a multi-species discourse. We're going to spend some time with the humming, buzzing, sweet, and delectable nectar of the bees. Sandira Belia and Annalika van der Sluges are beekeepers living in Portugal and the co-founders of Bee Wisdom, a platform where beekeepers and bee lovers can learn how to work synergistically with the bees. They're here to unveil the mysterious inner lives of the bee world, which they refer to as the bee deva or bee spirit. These days, it seems that most conversations around bees focus on their collapse because their populations are declining at terrifying rates and there is a very just fear around crop pollination and what will happen to our harvests when there are no more bees left to pollinate them. However, this can obscure and take us further away from the magic and mystery of the bees. Instead of questions around extinction and death, could we instead learn to ask each other, have you ever been seduced by a bee? Have you ever been seduced by the sounds and smell of the hive? Have you ever been healed by a bee? And how do beekeeping practices change when you start to see the world from the perspective and life worlds of the bees themselves? Sandir and Aniliki will be going into those points with us in just a minute. I then speak with Dr. Juniper Hauerer, an ecology scientist who uses her multimedia art practice to investigate the human influence on ecological systems. With Juniper, we explore the theme of entanglement through making art and science with other species. She shows us how art and science can be complementary and yet drastically different, and she will also describe her current art exhibitions, which reveal the secret language of leaves, Joshua trees, mycorrhizal networks, deep plant evolution, and settler culture. Whether it's through art, beekeeping, scientific study, or whatever else inspires you, Today you can ask yourself, how am I entangled in a web of other lives? How can I deepen this relationship so that becomes a true collaboration? And have some fun with it. Without further ado, here is Sandira Belia and Annalika van der Sluges from Be Wisdom. Sandira and Annalika, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you both on the show. You are the hearts and minds behind Bee Wisdom, which is a network of bee lovers around the world who come together to share their love of bees and their work around restoring, I think, some of the dignity and natural desires of the bee kingdoms. From my understanding, you met some years ago and you're both in your own personal healing processes and you became friends. You started working with the bees together and the journey of that has been transformational I know for both of you and, and probably for the bees as well. 
And now you're trying to change the narrative around bees in the world and how human beings can relate to these fascinating, fascinating beings. I'd like to start by asking a very broad question. Why the bees and why have they been such an important part of your lives? What's it like to work with bees? So bees have been with me uh, since infancy because uh, my mother was beekeeper, is actually still a beekeeper, even though she has very few hives now. And yeah, so I was really bathing in the smell of honey, in the smoke and uh, thrive around the honey harvest, the swarm season. I would be quite comfortable to be with bees around me and knowing that when they would swarm, there was no danger. But it came much, much later in my life when I actually decided to work with bees. And very clearly for me, it was not about honey production. So it was really about the connection with the diva of the bees and uh, their wisdom, how they can bridge people and nature, how they can teach us and support our healing. Yeah, and I was seduced by the smell and the sound of the hive. First, when bees came to a community garden where I invited a beekeeper, and the magic that the bees brought in the air, and then later when I brought Sandira, just to be with the hive in this possibility of really having a relationship with this vibrational being and their smell melting my heart and soothing my nervous system and opening my senses. And this wonder like, oh, you are such a special being. I want to get to know you better. And you have so many gifts I would like to be connected with so we can join our qualities and bring beauty wherever we are. For me, that's also a beautiful quality of the bees, how they bring beauty and love to whatever they are touching. They're alchemists. And this alchemy is something that intrigues me. And I love to bring this to the worlds in which I am participating. I'm so struck by both of you sharing something that's deeply sensorial. The sounds, the smells, the tastes, this vibration of being around the bees and how they bring beauty and bridge humans and nature. I love that word alchemist. We'll probably come back to that a little bit later. And Annalika, through our conversation and Sandira reading your book, I had never thought of bees in the way that you described them. Uh, firstly, as these connectors. Annalika, in our conversation, you said they're like your compass to read and understand the land and the ways that the bees move are helping you know what's out there. And then this idea, Sandira, in your book about the song that they make songs with their wing muscles and each colony has its own songs and perfumes and that the young maidens, I love that word maiden, learns them young. And, and so it sounds like to be a bee is to be surrounded by touch and smells and vibrations. And Sandira, in your book, you also speak about this idea of touch. And I will read something from your book and I'd love for you to comment on it. You take the perspective of the bees in certain parts of your book and you say, Throughout the hive, we constantly palpate and caress each other. 
The effects of this continual sensuous contact are comparable to those of a massage. Tactile language maintains warmth and social cohesion and spreads the pheromones of our collective body. So I'm going to pause there and let you, Sandir and then Annalika, comment on this deeply sensorial bee world and how it's experienced by human beings and maybe even by the bees themselves. Sure. There's something I'm struck with is that many people I brought to the hive are very, very sensitive to the bee touch. And just the fact to receive a bee on your finger, licking a drop of honey, can change the love. It can be life-changing. So it's true that there are different love languages and the touch language is a very important one that has probably have been a little bit forgotten or denied in our Western culture. And the bee recall this thirst for just touch and sensuality through touch. I told this story recently when I visited Anelike last week to the, the, the two apprentices that were with us, that there was once where we opened the beehive and the floor was covered with bees. We wanted to change the hive to a new body because the, the box was way too old. And during this transfer, we had this possibility to put our hand in that carpet of bees that was spread on the floor. And they were so calm, so gentle, so in trust. We had, it was the beehive we knew very well. And um, she was totally in trust with our actions. We didn't need to wear a bee suit for this action. And I had at this time some um, eczema on my hands, which was very painful, like cracks. And the bees suddenly started to crawl on the parts which had these eczema patches all over my hands and to lick it. And it was an absolute moment of transformation. I could feel that they were taking out this gray energy and transmuting it into light through their touch. That was a magical moment. On your website, you have videos of when these bees swarm. And we'll speak later about why the swarm is so important and what happens when you don't allow the bees to swarm. This was something I didn't know about, but part of the group will leave the hive to go and create a new colony. And this is really important for their survival. And in this video, you guys are, are touching the bees and your hands are covered with bees and you're, you know, you clean your hands with them, water and, and lavender. And I feel like I would be scared, to be honest, to put my hands inside and aren't you going to be stung? And I'm not wearing protection on my face. Do bees not always stink when they touch you? And can you be surrounded by bees with, without a suit and be okay? And what is that process like? Annalika, maybe you can speak to that. Yes, you can happily be around, well, at least the type of bees that we have, the Iberian bee. I don't know, there are so many bee species. Maybe there are bee species that have a very different character. And also trust builds over time. Maybe in the beginning, it's not something you are attracted to, to be with the bees without a suit, because there are patterns of fear or maybe beliefs you have about that it is needed to wear protection that makes that you can have a more intimate relationship with the bees when you would use a suit because you would feel comfortable and safe and then you have space for the relationship. 
And there are also ways in which it is possible to approach the bees. And like you would do with a human being, you are not going to stumble into somebody's house, open the door without knocking and asking permission to enter. And if you do the same with a hive and you start knowing the sounds of the hive, because it's a language that bees have between themselves that we can also learn by spending more time with the hive. And another thing that the bees do, bees do it in different ways. They do it while kissing the flowers somehow. They kiss the flowers to collect the nectar and the pollen, obviously, but also to create those pathways of energy. And they also do it in the hive, in the hive with their song and with some different movements and even some, we can see sometimes bees in meditation, in the cells. They're just not moving, they're sleeping and even maybe dreaming. And they're also doing important work when they're not actively doing, they are being. And this can only be when these beehives are thriving. They have enough honey to maintain themselves and then they can actively fulfill these roles. Unfortunately, when they are under honey production pressure, they have constantly human beings taking off a part of their resources and putting back some empty boxes that trigger their instinct of filling up. Then they will prioritize filling up these boxes and of course, not being able to to do the other jobs. That's something we're usually not aware of. I was really moved um, and saddened when I came across your work and then some links that you have a great resource page on your website that I'll put in the show notes to some other websites of your friends. But um, how we work the bees in the same way that is um, in parallel to livestock farming and also how we overwork human beings, by the way, this idea of you can't rest, you constantly have to produce, there's always more to fill, keep going, keep running on the sort of hedonic treadmill, just don't stop. And we do that to bees because we just ask them to keep making honey for us. And when they make honey for us, they're not necessarily feeding themselves or making their propolis or I don't even know what, you know, all these other functions that you're saying because they're producing for us and we have them hooked up in these beehives like livestock. And so I'd never thought of like the animal justice aspect of bees. And I want to talk about it now in our conversation because I think it's really critical. This idea that beekeeping has now been designed to suit the beekeeper and maybe human society and not the bees themselves. And you guys have written that the environments we make for bees have nothing to do with natural bee behavior. We can obviously name other practices that are not ethically aligned with natural laws. One of them is sugar feeding. So many people actually eat honey. They think they do good. It's good for health. It's like it says, it's better than sugar. But actually many people don't realize that many beekeepers, when they take honey from the bees, they feed the bees in change with sugar, white sugar. And white sugar has similar effects on bees than on human beings. It triggers dependency, addiction, and also aggressivity. Bees become more and more like frantic and want like a change frequency. So that's one 
thing that I like to recommend people if they want to buy honey to really check to buy local honey and to speak with the beekeeper about their practices. I'm not against honey protection. I think that when one is thriving, like us, when we're thriving, we're able to give. We live in an abandoned world and the bees are teachers of abundance and giving. So I believe it's possible to receive honey as a gift when they are really thriving But these yields will be usually very different than the ones that actually are in place um, in conventional beekeeping. I mean, the lesson there is let the living world have what it needs to keep being generative. And then let's, in this kind of honorable harvest idea, let's then be allowed to have what's left over for us, but don't keep making the animals work for us. And also this this idea that you shared about um, how they artificially inseminate queens and the queen rearing and the the queen, obviously, the queen of the colony. And we dampen their wild and natural intelligence when we start making these artificial bees. So I know this about other creatures like salmon and so on and so forth, but that these managed hives with artificial queens are not that healthy and they're actually a lot more fragile. Could you speak a little bit to that? Because that seems like something that we should be concerned about that these ecosystem connectors and are not actually being reared in a way that is healthy for an ecosystem? I can answer mainly from a gut answer. I've never been connected to queen reverse in detail. And so the fact is these queens that are artificially created, I couldn't go in details here, but they're actually emergency queens. So they're not created originally with the purpose to become queens. But in the hive system, they can change the destiny somehow of an egg from being a maiden or a queen, depending on how she will be fed uh, when she's a larvae. And they are created under pressure. So to create artificial queens, you have to pretend that the queen has died so that the maiden is going to create suddenly lots of new queens in order to replace the actual one. So all this is fake from the beginning. So it's like all based on a lie. And so that's one part. And obviously, queen rearers will say, yes, we will select traits that will maybe support the development of behaviors that will support the bees to face certain diseases, for example. And if we look at this closer, it will also interfere with laws of nature where where local bees, races, will have co-evolved with their environment for centuries, millennia. And suddenly we will import bees that have been created, selected, and think that they are going to save the bees. I think that's very arrogant. I'm sorry for the term, but it feels just not not respectful. On that point of the arrogance, I shared with you guys before this conversation, this startup that I was reading about that does automatic precision robotics for beehives. It seemed very apocalyptic. No, it's called the Bee Home. And it. I'm just quoting from, from their website. I'm sorry if they're listening to this, but it's strange. This automatic bee home detects the threats to the colony like pesticides or pets and defends against them as if the bees can't defend. And then this part is so sad. It says it requires no human intervention. And I feel like that's so far from where we need to go at this moment in time of let's distance human beings further 
from these deeply nourishing connections that you guys have shared. No, that's not, we don't need even humans to intervene anymore. It's just an automated system with automatic bees going and pollinating our crops. And that this bee home does its own climate and humidity control. So that means that the bees over millennia don't know how to do their own. As you said, Annalika, they're suited to these environments they're in and the particular geoclimatic conditions. But no, the beehive will do the climate and humidity control for the bees. I mean, for you guys to read something like that, isn't that just probably incredibly bizarre because you know how intelligent the bees are. And all of a sudden, we claim to be doing them a favor by doing all of this for them. Well, it's also bizarre because there is a whole world behind it of, for example, moving the bees from crop to crop because there are so many monocultures that need to be pollinated and the bees can't live there because there's nothing to feed them in the time that the crop is not flowering. And that's why the boxes need to be light because they need to be transported So there are so many things that are a kind of a co-evolution of being on a track of taking the bees out of their most suitable environment and supporting the conditions that make that the ecosystem can take care of itself and that there is abundance to share with everybody, even with human beings. And we can be part of that. And so if we start going further and further on those tracks of, ah, this is happening with the bees, we need to save the bees, and we put it in our human way of, okay, this is happening, so we will have a fix here and a fix there and a fix there and a fix there. And there is a moment that we don't know anymore how the bees are when they are in a natural environment. I think that many things that I discovered over the last years show me, oh, but if the bee would be in a tree, the bee would behave very different. So how can I learn about that? And how can I step by step, by being more intimate with the bees, learn about what is the bee? Who is the bee? And who is the colony? And what is the relationship between the bee and the landscape, the bee and the human? So it's a very different track. Sandra, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that. Otherwise, I'll I'll jump to another question about swarming. Because that's another instance where we interrupt. That's very important to include. Because one of the things in commercial beekeeping is that swarming is not uh, very welcome because it means the loss of production. A colony that swarms will need uh, time and energy to build up the colony, the new colony, or to build up and to be able to produce honey. So what beekeepers do in a production scheme is that they are splitting colonies or that they are preventing swarming by giving the bees more space so they can grow bigger in their own environment. And so then this whole process, we have been touching a little bit in the beginning of renewal and refreshment is not happening. And when we take out this possibility of natural renewal and refreshment and adaptation and bringing in new strands of genes, because there is also the whole process of the princesses going and mating with drones of many different colonies... And what else is happening in this process? The only time 
in the life of a queen where she is bathing in the light of the sun, especially when I look at bees and their energetic function, there's something very essential in swarming that belongs to the strength of the bee and her capacity to fully be her role and her being in the landscape and in the creation of Earth. I would like to hear you about this also, Sandira. Yeah, there's such a magic in swarming. The days before the swarm takes off are full of joy. You can feel the energy in the hives. They're like, yeah, they get prepared. Even the, the queen is put on a diet so that she's going to be more able to fly. And uh, there's a joy. And I had the chance once to be there at the moment of takeoff. So the mother colony was casting her daughter. And I just stayed there. I lay down on the ground looking at the sky. And the swarm stayed for some minutes above the mother hive. And I could see the patterns that would be drawn by the older um, bees on the skies. Like, Never would two bees bump into each other. It's like a real collective intelligence, like murmurations of starlings. They would all move with this intelligence that guide them and create magical geometrical patterns in the sky. And then all of a sudden, bloop, they would all leave and follow a direction that would be led by some scouts and fly like a winged serpent in the sky before landing on a bush or a tree for a temporary stay until they find their uh, new home. It seems so cruel to prevent that process from happening. Yeah, it's, it feels that it's very important reviving of the colony to be able to have that joy. So when it's done artificially, you, yeah, you sort of cut off this moment Gosh, all I wanted to do when I finished recording that episode was to go bury myself under a beehive and sense their vibrations pulsing through my skin. I would love to be a bee for a day. It sounds pretty delightful to be part of that hive community. So for now, that is it from Annalike and Sandira from Bee Wisdom. And we will hear from Dr. Juniper Hauerwer, who, as I mentioned earlier, traces the fine line between artist and scientist. Juniper is a founding member of the Arts Collective, the Algae Society BioArt Design Lab. She founded the environmental arts production company SymbioArt Lab. And that wasn't enough. She's also director of the Art and Science Initiative at UC Santa Cruz, where she also teaches art. Here is Juniper Hauer today on LifeWorlds. I built an art and science program at Santa Cruz and we got some funding for that where I started teaching a class that brings these ideas together and developing programming and an artist residency that's very science focused as well and environmental um, sciences inspired. And then the art department started a new environmental art program there too, which is really exciting. And actually, so recently I was invited because I had never done an MFA, right? It's all of my professional career, as it were, academic-wise, has always been in the sciences. And I've taken 
one art class in my life. And I was invited by UC Berkeley to get an MFA fully funded. And so I'm doing that right now. That's so exciting. (laughs) Wow. Yes. I wonder how many incredibly talented people from a young age feel like they're forced to decide, you know, and especially people who care about the living world and nature and they're deeply creative because people who tend to connect with nature are, but then there's no job in that. There's no money in that. And so I have to go into this more narrow field and that, you know, when you share that story, it makes my heart sink a bit because obviously you're facing something that many are. And then I love how the thing that we long for the most, we can then create it in the world. And you created the art and science, you know, you're now heading this art and science center that tries to bring those worlds together. Do you feel different? Uh, and you spoke to it a little bit in terms of like how the question asking is different, the techniques. How do you feel different when you're doing art versus when you're doing the science as it comes to translating the lives of these other species. Um, And we'll talk after about your work with the Joshua trees and with your art show, Botanical Entanglements. But in each of these cases, you've been interpreting the lives of the living world and these relationships. And you're interpreting them on one hand through the science, uh, data collecting, analyzing, et cetera. And on the other hand, you're creating really funky art pieces around them, like apps and all these kinds of things. How do you feel different and what are the sensitivities that's required for each of those um, approaches? I found that with my science practice, that it was the creative question asking that was the most exciting part of it for me, doing the research and understanding where the need is. Like I'm definitely drawn to questions that exist in some state of urgency, environmental urgency, social justice urgency. So identifying and thinking through that process and generating questions is like such an exciting part of the research for me. And then being in the field and being out with whatever system and species and life forms that I'm working with, like it's really so wonderful and incredible. But the actual methodologies, scientific methodologies, I do not enjoy that much. And it's the reality that I had to kind of come to terms with. Like ecology is a lot of counting over and over and over. And you just this repetition that I think for some people, there can be this beauty in the monotony and it becomes almost like a meditation. But in general, for most people I know and scientists, it's a grind. It is hard work and it is not that enjoyable. It's enjoyable to be out in these incredible places that sometimes you only get access to as a researcher or perhaps special access, or maybe you have an excuse to spend a long extended period of time there. Yeah, it can be almost clinical by need and definition of the science methodology and process. You know, your hypothesis testing, right? You have very conscripted and like delineated methodologies that you are using to collect and think about your question and your data. Conversely, as an artist, there is none of that. (laughs) Not entirely true, but there's so much more freedom to be in and be with the organisms, the lives that you want to get to know better and the questions that you're asking. I will say too, with arts, that one thing I found is that there are conversations and questions happening in the field of arts that 
are in a way that you are almost expected to be responding to. It's a culture of practice as well. And there's a lot more freedom. But if you would like your work to be shown and you want to be getting funding and granting, you need to use the right language. You need to understand where the culture of practice is around that field as well. So I've really kind of come to see like, oh, yeah, there's not freedom, complete freedom here in the arts either. Um, it has its own rules. Yeah, so each space has its own freedom and constraints. Totally. In in your work with the Joshua Trees and the impacts of climate change, I was so moved by looking at the videos and reading about that because this was a land that you really grew up in and spent a lot of time in and watching a species, um, an entire life form that you think may not be there anymore in the next 50 years or 100 years. Coming face to face with that kind of extinction is obviously heartbreaking. And a lot of your work there was documenting and understanding the relationships between the Joshua trees and the soil microbiome and the moths and so on and so forth. And a place you have a deep relationship with I was really struck by what you shared in something that you shared with me beforehand, which was how you needed to do the art in a way to keep yourself sane. And you've written, you know, having the art component saved me, it gave me a way to humanize all the science. And so I'm wondering if you feel in a way like other scientists who are working on the climate crisis and extinction in this kind of clinical counting abstracted way, if you feel like they would benefit from having some form of art or creativity to express, oh shit, like, okay, I'm seeing this disappearance in front of my eyes as you were with the Joshua trees, but then you made such potent art around it that it helped you channel your emotions. And I wonder if you feel like other scientists should be more uh, supported in those outlets for the difficulties that they face. Yeah, processing eco-grief is like a whole thing. And I know some people are in therapy. For me, art is definitely one approach that I have to even working with and conceptualizing these big issues. And, you know, for me thinking about with Joshua Tree specifically, how it was very personal. They are a plant that I conceptualize as part of my identity and then my home where I grew up. And so there is something that's very jarring about that in many ways. And art is a way to process those emotions and that grief, but also to think about other ways of exploring life and my connection to it and its own rights of existence and thinking about just new ways of conceptualizing life and what we're doing on this planet um, through art. But you know, also connecting to other people about the work that's happening and the complete crisis that is happening right now. And granted, has happened many times on the planet for different cultures and different segments of life. But yeah, we're witnessing a major climate extinction event right now. It's heavy. Yeah. Could you describe verbally, because this is a an auditory experience, mm -hmm. some of the interventions that you did in the Joshua Tree? research that contained the science, but were artful for you and that were those avenues of connecting others to the subject and also moving through your own emotions? 
Sure. For many years, I've done a painted series, a multimedia painted series of Joshua Tree soilscapes because you know I'm a soil biologist as well as Joshua Tree. I work with their pollinators, but I deeply, deeply have spent a lifetime in the Joshua Tree root rhizome and um, soil spaces and working with their mycorrhizal fungi, which are the soil fungi that grow into the plant roots and out in these vast webs throughout the soil, foraging for nutrients and water and trading it in exchange to the plant for access to sugars. But they're incredibly complex. And I wanted to share this immense complexity that I was finding, that I was just, you know, experiencing in these different ways of, of getting to know the plant and its entangled multi-species world, right? Because there is no Joshua tree by itself. There's the Joshua tree community. And part of my work and my approach was to really think about the existence of the tree in the community space and sharing some of that immense complexity and these entangled worlds. And so I would work with the Joshua tree seedlings and the different fungal community and grow um, the seedlings to visualize root growth patterns that I would incorporate in my paintings, which also utilized seed oil that I extracted from Joshua tree seeds um, as a way to fractionate the paints that I was working with and create these very organic spaces on the canvas that looked like some of the fungal interactions I was seeing in the soilscapes, but also under the microscope. And so there's a bit of confusion of scales. It looks like landscape topographies and also soil fractioning, but it also looks like things you'd see under a microscope. And then I would include real Joshua trees from my field sites that I had been working with for years, um, some of the trees that then went on to become part of my work with a dating site that I created for Joshua Trees as a way to just be kind of playful because some of the work gets really serious. And I would see so many people out with their phones out in Joshua Tree National Park, which is where I was doing my work, and thought, okay, well, I don't like cell phones out in nature very much, but here they are. You know, maybe this is another way to just interact with people and kind of co-opt this tool and be really playful about it. I did this social practice type project where I invited a lot of different artists and writers to write dating style profiles for the trees and made little music videos and did tree carvings for relief printmaking that I have shared at many, many festivals and events for people to meet different Joshua trees from my field sites. And there's a scavenger hunt and you can go out and you can, you know, form some kind of connection. And my inkling was like, okay, well, this will be a somatic experience that people can have with this tree in this art making little thing that we're doing together. But yeah, I was surprised by how much people really connected with the trees through this and got so excited and sent the trees love letters to through the site. So it's been really fun. And then the work has gone on to I've made animations about my research in the park, but then also other animations, just thinking about what it would be like if we could actually witness the tree dying, because this idea that a hundred years, they could all be gone. Well, you know, in some ways that's really fast. And I see that as being very fast. A hundred years is also really long and it might feel like, well, you know, I don't really see it happening. When you see something dying quickly, it has a lot more urgency. So I made work that speeds that up and theatricizes it in a way. And, but also, 
you know, uh, with a soundtrack that is very Western music, kind of Hollywood influenced as a way to implicate the whole Western mythos surrounding the American West and how that intertwines with Joshua Tree mythology. Yeah, I got really into that more recently with just how cowboy culture in the American West is kind of uh, part of this whole problem. You can trace that back to Manifest Destiny and um, the settlement, the frontier mentality and the settlement and claiming and taming of the West and you know how important that is to just reframe the way that we exist within our natural communities and you know the violence that has been done both originally to indigenous people that occupied and lived in these areas, but then you know continues in many different ways. How different is it to have the frontier control and tame mentality to the mentality that is writing love poems to a tree? <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's kind of they're, they're very different in a certain way. I, I love that you did that dating app. I actually went on it um, on the side and read some of the things. It was really, really sweet. I love to chat about what it's like for you to be in a collaborative relationship with these species as you make art for them and from them and with them. You know, you spoke about multi-species entanglements in a way you are entangling yourself as you're like, okay, seedling, um, tree, leaf, we're going to make art together. And what it feels like to come close to another species and to work together to make art. Is that an accurate way of maybe describing some of your process? that it is like an interspecies collaboration? Yeah, well, I'm really interested in that. And it's something that I'm thinking a lot about and I'm hoping to approach better in the future. I feel like you can go down these philosophical conundrums of agency and how do I ever truly get consent for said collaboration? And it can get a little bit prickly, but basically I'm trying to approach it almost like a reframing of what anthropology did some years ago. Anthropologists, their history as scientists is so fraught with the way that they approached working with people and places. And they have done so much work to try and rethink all the methodologies they use in research to create opportunities for people to tell their story as opposed to telling the story for them. And so I'm trying to some ways, like this is my academic brain saying this, like I'm trying to create spaces that allow, you know, plants and multi-species to tell some of their stories, but also just wanting to be playful and get close to some of the incredible majesty and essence that is this other life form. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks time where we'll be talking about nature and cities and just where life can be found underneath and around all of that concrete. As per our tradition on the show, I'm going to end with a fun fact to bring you into an unexpected life world. Well, unsurprisingly for today, I'm going to talk about bees. Bee colonies have the most fascinating social structure I've ever heard of. And it's definitely beyond these last few minutes together for me to get into all of that. I want us for today to imagine what it's like being the queen bee. So each bee colony has only one queen, who is usually the mother of all of the bees in the hive. And as mother queen bee, part of her job is to organize and motivate everyone, especially the worker bees. And so she releases pheromones 
that work as a kind of social glue to unify and help give individual identity to the bee colony. As a special treat, she is fed the luxury diet of royal jelly, which is a secretion that comes from the glands of the heads of the young workers. Sounds like quite a delicious life. I would love to hear from you, so please do reach out to me on the website liferoll.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library that ranges on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list, and I'll see you back here soon. Okay.